Welcome to SciSection. My name is Daniel, and I'm the journalist for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Michael J. Frank, the director at the Kearney Center for Computational Brain Science. First, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. Can you give me like an introduction into your career and education background? Uh, sure. Um, I grew up in Montreal. I was really interested in uh, physics and math and engineering and went to school, uh, went to undergrad at Queen's University in electrical engineering, um, but uh, and worked for about a year at a cell phone company in San Diego before going on to grad school in uh, biomedical engineering and then neuroscience and psychology where I became interested in computational neuroscience. And I've been a, a professor and scientist in that area for uh, about 22 years. That's that's really cool. So I, I noticed that uh, when I was doing some research, I noticed that you got your bachelor's in electrical engineering. So how did you become interested in neuroscience? And then how did you make that transition from electrical engineering to the, the field of neuroscience? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch television and I'd be kind of awestruck by how you could see something that's happening at a different time and place all made by some machine and i was kind of wondering what's going on inside that machine that allows that to happen and some of my friends would just say uh don't you want to just believe that it's magic and i didn't i wanted to kind of understand the underlying math and physics of it and so that kind of is what one of the things that motivated me to go into engineering is to learn that you know the kinds of physics that and math that allow us to explain those kind of things. But then, um, you know, as I worked in the field as an engineer for cell phones, the day-to-day -day job was actually pretty interesting. But at the end of the day, I felt a little bit more idealistic and wanted to feel like maybe I could apply my engineering skills for something, for example, like a, a medical application. So I just happened to uh, write into Google after one year of working in that job. Um, is there something I can do in Colorado in bioengineering? Colorado part was because I really liked the mountains and biking and skiing and things like that. Uh, and then I just happened to find a couple of people who were doing bio, biological engineering, electrical engineering there for medical applications. Um, but along the way, I took courses that were meant for engineering called uh, Brains, Minds and Computers that really like focus on how the brains are similar and also how they're different from computers in different ways. Um, and then I took a, I found that really fascinating and I took a course on neural networks, which is a way of modeling sort of artificial networks of neurons that underlies a lot of what's in artificial intelligence today. That was in the computer science department, but I found it interesting enough to, um, you know, want to do research in it, but the prof was, uh, going on sabbatical and they sent me to somebody in neuroscience and psychology who spends their life building these neural networks from the standpoint of trying to understand how the brain solves problems like how we make decisions, how we learn, how we perceive things, and um, different problems in learning and memory. Uh, and that sort of opened up a whole other sort of area of inquiry in my mind uh, from the engineering standpoint instead of you know trying to understand something that other engineers have already built we can use the same kind of you know guiding um sort of curiosity to try to reverse and engineer a much more complex system that we have much less understanding of which is the human brain and so i became really fascinated by that and spent a long time working in that area and decided to do a phd in that area and sort of the rest is is history from there that's really cool so something while looking across at the research, I noticed that there was this emphasis on computational brain science. How does it differ from the traditional approach that neurology takes? Is there a, a difference? 
And then how does that further the research that's done in that field? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first, just one clarification is neurology is, is a field of medicine that studies people with uh, neurological disorders, whereas neuroscience is just trying to understand the basic mechanisms of the brain and how they're responsible for different uh, things. And so your question could sort of be broken down in, into two, like what are the standard approaches to neurology? That's to try to understand patient populations and mm -hmm. what's going wrong with them and how to treat them. And then there's also the basic approach to just understanding how do neurons work in the brain and the computational perspective can be brought to bear on on both of the, both of those things so it's really uh thinking about the brain as a, a computational device that takes inputs and does some kind of uh mathematical transformations on those inputs to try to produce outputs and tries to solve problems um, and sort of coming at it from that lens help, helps us to apply a little bit of rigor in developing theories that are, are then testable and, and quantifiable. Um, and then we hope that those insights also, uh, you know, allow us eventually to revise the way in which we do diagnostics or treatment. Um, it doesn't it doesn't replace other approaches for studying either neurology or basic neuroscience. It's just a, another set of tools for providing a lens into what the function might be that is not simply just looking at uh, the wet neuron in the lab and looking at when it spikes or looking at um, ion channels. It's trying to provide a, you know, a functional characterization of how all the, the bits go together in the service of some goal. Okay, I see. So it's, it's, it sort of complements the traditional approach. It helps support the the research. Yeah, and it helps you sort of develop a different way of thinking about it that leads to hopefully leads to new theories. For for example, there are some parts of the brain that seem to be in, involved in some kinds of memory and other parts of the brain that are involved in other kinds of memory. And that was sort of a, a descriptive finding. We know that from many experiments across species across decades. Um, but the computational approach allows us to ask, why do those different brain systems evolve in different ways? What kinds of problems are they trying to solve and uh, and how to sort of refine the theories better? I see. Okay. What are the challenges that you face conducting research with multiple disciplines? So I, I noticed that on the website, there was an emphasis on uh, you have uh, neuroscientists, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists all working together. And all these people come from different uh, walks of life and different, uh, they approach problems differently. So when you're coming to, at a problem, what are the, some of the challenges that you face? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus these days in general on interdisciplinary science, which is has a lot of advantages, but it also has some costs in that you want you want people to become experts in their particular discipline, and it's hard enough to become an expert in any one discipline. So one of the costs, or if you try to become, you know, a jack of all trades, you become a master of none. That's just the, the cliche. Um, and so some of the challenges there is how to figure out, you know, how to speak this, the same language as people in adjacent disciplines that are informing uh, the work that we're doing without having to become a perfect expert in all of those disciplines. So you have to know how to collaborate with other people. You have to know enough to, um, you know, allow that those other disciplines to influence our thinking. But it does allow us to prevent um, people from getting sort of overly siloed into one way of thinking about how the brain or the mind works or or thinking about like one level of analysis. Some people focus a lot on you know, individual neurons or ion channels. Other people might figure focus on the entire system of the brain or others might focus on patient populations or artificial intelligence, right? These are all different things that if you, uh, if you're trying to figure out the, the, the whole, the puzzle as a whole, 
be informing yourself from all those different fields can be helpful, but you just have to be careful about not trying to do all of it yourself. Okay. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the focuses of your research is reinforcement learning. Could you speak a little more as to what exactly it is? Yeah, so reinforcement learning, um, you know, initially came from psychology, but then was imported into computer science as a way of uh, trying to summarize or, or try to capture how an agent, how a computer uh, might make decisions in order to maximize the sum of its future rewards. So, for example, uh, currently there are, are artificial intelligent models that use reinforcement learning that figure out how to play chess or go or a lot of the complicated games that humans have mastered at levels that are above the very best humans uh, and they do so by you know trying out different strategies and the only thing that they they're, they're never told here's what you should have done because you know that the optimal solution to any of these games is often not known instead what they get is just how well did i do when i made this particular move and so the science of reinforcement learning or the computer science of, of reinforcement learning is you know how to develop better strategies to improve performance in whatever you're trying to to do uh and there's a lot of um there's a lot of nuance in there it's not just simply pavlovian like or or skinnerian where you just happen to like associate a bell with a reward which is what some people is it's it's really like whatever you can do to try to maximize a better outcome for yourself and so that there's a lot of research in artificial intelligence like i said in computer science but the brain is also doing a lot of reinforcement learning. There's been really fruitful links between concepts that come from sort of the, the computer science way of thinking about reinforcement learning for interpreting uh, signals in the brain, for example, and the dopamine system that seem to convey uh, the kind of error signals that we see in reinforcement learning. Uh, and then reciprocally, what I'm really myself interested in is not just learning from artificial intelligence and computer science, but looking more detailed ways into the mind and the brain of, of people and animals as they engage in reinforcement learning problems and ask, is there something specific about that bio the biological solution that is adaptive that actually could also help out uh, people who are trying to develop better reinforcement learning agents in artificial intelligence, sort of like closing the loop. So in the chess analogy, when a computer receives input on a move that it made, is the input qualitative, as in it's good or bad, or is it quantitative, as in it's ranked from a scale of 1 to 10? Yeah, it, it could be either one of those things. But um, the, so it, it, it basically learns to make expectations about how much reward it's expecting to get, how many points it's expecting to get. And then when it's wrong about those expectations, that the degree to which it's wrong is a learning signal that tells it it should adjust its expectations. But not just its expectations, but it also has to figure out what did I just do? Uh, what's, what events happened in the last and time steps that led to that better or worse outcome than I expected? And which actions should I consider in the future? And a lot of times uh, there's uncertainty. You don't know if I take this particular course of action, what's going to happen. So some of the strategies are, you know, how do I deal with that uncertainty? How can I, you know, maximize information gain by taking certain courses of action that and that would allow me to discover better solutions to the problem, uh, you know, to to try to explain how all of that works in the underlying neural networks of these systems would take a lot longer. Okay, that helps me understand the reinforcement learning process a lot better. So, how does the research in reinforcement learning, as well as the other areas of your research, help in the direct development of treatments for mental illnesses and other neurological disorders. 
Yeah, so um, I'm going to just go back to the Parkinson's disease situation. In that case, Parkinson's disease results from a depletion of dopamine in the midbrain of uh, and dopamine is a chemical that is transmitted to lots of different parts of the brain. Uh, and it was initially thought that it was involved in just facilitating motor function that, you know, you need enough dopamine in order to be able to move appropriately. Um, but this uh, line of science has led to revised understanding of what it's actually doing, which involves partly computing differences between what you expect to get and what you get. And that that reward that sort of what's called a reward prediction error signal is used to modify learning of which actions to select. And so from that perspective, if you have, if you don't have enough dopamine in Parkinson's disease, it leads to uh, uh, undervaluation of the actions that you could take. So it's as if they all feel very costly and that leads to a change in the motivation to select certain actions uh, and, and, that theory also has led to a different understanding of how some of the progression of Parkinson's symptoms can evolve over time in a way that involves essentially an aberrant learning process rather than just a pure uh, motor function deficit. Similarly, the, the, the sort of computational ways of thinking about the ways in which that circuit is involved in selecting motor actions have been extended by myself and, and various other people to explore how those circuits can also be involved in selecting cognitive actions like such as should I attend to what you're telling me or should I listen to something else or uh, what plans should I make at the bigger picture uh, motor decision not just like how to reach for my cup but you know what should I next with my life and, and things like that and, and there are various sort of brain circuits that sort of scaffold on top of that low level motor circuit turns out that the the dopamine system is involved in learning the values of actions across all of those kinds of uh circuits at the same time. So it allows us to sort of unify the way of thinking about how the, the motor system works with how decision-making systems work or cognitive systems work. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of patient populations that involve changes to the dopamine system in these particular brain circuits can be understood from a, a common lens and that spans um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, some aspects of uh, schizophrenia, addiction, Parkinson's disease, and others. I, I had no idea that uh, Parkinson's had a relation with, with dopamine. I thought dopamine would be almost entirely tied to mental health illnesses and not degenerative neurological disorders. Leading off from that, do you feel pressure to excel in your research due to the nature of its applications? Um, well, I don't know. I, I'd say I'm mostly motivated to just try to improve our understanding of how the brain works and also to use these computational techniques to better improve uh, diagnostics and treatment of mental illness. So there, um, if I feel pressure, it's that uh, the these problems are quite complex, of course, going from basic biology and computation up to higher level cognition and trying to understand complex mental illnesses. And I think sometimes the expectations about what we should be able to do may be too high in for short amounts of time. So there's always that trade-off between what you can do as a basic scientist for trying to make some uh, some discoveries that will have some um, long-term benefits versus uh, an application that tries to solve something really concrete in the short term. And so that I, I do think that it, taking this approach 
it is useful and we're going to understand more about mental health uh, using a computational brain science approach. But sometimes there's a bit of a, a pressure that we have to show that's going to have tangible impact on the treatment of real individuals, real patients in the next, you know, few numbers of years. Uh, and I think that expectation is is too high because we're, we're really, even if we're taking the right approach, it should actually take a while because the problems are, are complex. And so there's always that kind of challenge of balancing um, the desire to show that the approach is useful. We have made some tangible uh, impacts, we meaning the field, uh, on, on understanding of these things versus not trying to overclaim that we're actually you know curing all mental health in a short amount of time. Do you feel that those expectations tend to come from people that don't quite understand the complexity of the field? Uh, possibly, but but honestly, even some people who are in the field or uh, are in, uh, let's say, the, the people who fund the, the National Institute of, of Health funds uh, people to, to study health-related issues in the United States anyway. Um, and there are people in those clinical sciences who also develop fairly simple hypotheses about what might be underlying specific mental health disorders. And so, you know, initially it was discovered as, as an example that when people were given antipsychotics, which treat schizophrenia, it was discovered that those antipsychotics that can treat some aspects of schizophrenia acted on dopamine receptors. And that led some people to think, oh, maybe we can explain all schizophrenia in terms of a change in dopamine receptors. Turns out that there there are profound changes in the dopamine system in patients with schizophrenia, but it's far more complicated than than just the dopamine system. There's a whole uh, set of interacting brain systems that are altered that interact with the dopamine system, and, and so sometimes I think even you know people who are basic scientists or clinical scientists tend to have simple ideas about how um, basic biology relates to complex mental illness, and it, it uh, it's just more complicated than that. Oh, okay. I see. As someone who's faced with the complexity and the fragility of the human mind on a day-to-day -day basis, does that impact you on a personal level? And do you ever find yourself analyzing your own neurology as a result of it? Um, yeah, sometimes. I, I, don't, I don't think it always helps to have knowledge about how some things work in order to apply it to your, your own personal situation. Like if you're, uh, I don't know, that classic example would be, I guess, worry. If you're worried about something and you know that there, there are certain mechanisms that cause you to worry more, it doesn't necessarily help to tell yourself that that's just how the way the, the brain works. You might end up continuing to worry about something. Um, but also in terms of your first question, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, it, that's one of the reasons why it's important to have interdisciplinary expertise. So partnering with people who really know the clinical syndromes that we're trying to understand or to follow the actual individual patients and see what kinds of uh, problems that they may be suffering from. Because when, there is a risk at trying to understand things from a computational basis that, you know, you're trying to boil things down to very specific mechanisms and computations that, you know, those in themselves are not going to describe a whole person and the richness of their their situation and how, uh, you know, their emotions interact with their disorders and, and, and things like that. It's really interesting to see how that computational brain science brings this analytical approach to the human brain. This is a question I've always wanted to ask somebody who studies the brain. Have you ever seen a movie where you look at... Um, like you're going through like the Matrix or, or the RoboCop and you think to yourself, 
this is not how the brain works. They've completely miscaptured the, the idea of like the mechanisms in the brain. Yeah, some, sometimes things are, are overly simplistic and other times they're actually dealt with quite well. Like uh, I think Memento was an example of uh, a movie that was about memory that actually characterized what we know about the hippocampus and, and degeneration in memory quite well. But there are other examples. Um, honestly, I don't I don't remember the details of Robocop or even the Matrix enough to say specifically, but uh, just to bring it back to the dopamine system, there's a movie called Dopamine and the uh, the sort of subtitle of the movie is, I think it says like love or just a chemical reaction. And that sort of brings the, the, the idea that a lot of people think about dopamine these days is that it's uh, a hedonic chemical. It's a chemical that allows you to experience pleasure. And it turns out that that's actually not what it does in the brain, that that's a, a massive oversimplification. It's not about experiencing pleasure. It, it has, it does have to do with things related to reward, but not the, the pleasure aspect of it. Uh, it has to do with, you know, learning how to improve your situation, like I was mentioning before, and, and some aspects of motivation. And so, you know, but it's not that I expect when I see a movie that it's going to be conveying, you know, the, the details of the science that I happen to study. How is dopamine more than just a hedonistic chemical? Because I myself had that conception of dopamine. Uh, well, I, to give you a, a classic example that actually did come from collaborations between computational neuroscientists and basic dopamine physiologists, if you if you have a monkey or a, an animal of any type, including a human, um, and you give them a reward that they like and they enjoy and they didn't expect it, then you, if you record the dopamine system, it, it, it goes up. So that's consistent with maybe what you would think that it's hedonic, that you're experiencing pleasure because you're getting that reward. But then if you learn to expect that, uh, just in a very simple, uh, let's say I give you some, uh, some cue, some, some stimulus that tells you you're going to get that reward in a few seconds. And let's say you're, you know, let's say that reward is like juice. You're really thirsty and you get the juice and, and, you really enjoy it. Um, while you're enjoying it, if you completely expected the, the, that to occur, the dopamine system doesn't care about it at all. It doesn't go up, even though you are enjoying it. But what does happen is that the, the stimulus that preceded it by a few seconds, if that itself was not predicted, that elicits an increase in dopamine, even though that thing doesn't really induce the same hedonic pleasure. So what, it, what and, and similarly, if you then give that stimulus and you expect the reward, but then you withhold it. You don't actually give the person or the animal the reward. Then you see that dopamine levels actually drop. And so what that kind of pattern uh, told us is that instead of reflecting the, the reward itself or the pleasure that you experience, it actually reflects the, the change in your expectations about future reward. And that, so like when you, when you get a stimulus that predicts a future reward and you didn't expect that in, in beforehand, that itself is a, an error in your prediction of reward or when, but when you do get the reward and you did expect it, there's no change in your expectations. So there are other brain systems that like opioids that reflect the hedonic aspect of what you enjoy. What dopamine does is it just conveys how wrong you were about the reward that you expected, if better or worse than expected. And that allows you to better learn what to do to make that reward happen again in the future. So, uh, you know, people, when you almost all drugs of abuse increase dopamine, cocaine is a great example of that. Um, cocaine user, users will continue to do cocaine even after they stop enjoying it, 
but it does make them want to continue to do it. And so that what you're doing when you when somebody takes cocaine, you're you're sort of artificially increasing dopamine levels, which then reinforces the actions that you took to then produce that increase in dopamine. But you don't actually necessarily enjoy it. That makes so much more sense. Do you think it would be better if people understood dopamine as you just presented it? Uh it's possible. I think we have yet to show examples of that, but I think if you allow people to understand more about how their sort of reinforcement learning system works in the brain, you may be able to change their their habits. So uh, I guess one one quick example of this, and it's, it's kind of a, a silly example, but um, a lot of people, when they want to do, let's say they want to develop a better habit, like exercising more. Um, often it feels costly if you have to think about, should I really go out and exercise? I don't really feel like doing it. Uh, so it turns out that um, the the way in which you represent the costs of exercise when you're initially deciding to do it is different from once you've engaged in beginning to, once you've decided to do it, the cost of actually doing more of it becomes lower. And there's some way in which we understand how that works with the dopamine system. But essentially, like if you say, okay, I want, let's say I want to do push-ups and you think you can do 50 push-ups, but now you don't feel like doing 50 push-ups. You can just tell yourself, okay, I'm just going to do five or 10. But once you've started, you, the way in which the dopamine system works, it sort of invigorates you to can, can keep on going. So that kind of, uh, that kind of link might be helpful and more examples like that might be helpful where you, you sort of can trick yourself to do things that are more healthy and away from, um, you know, unhealthy habits, for example. Wow, that's really interesting to see how that conception of dopamine can be used to develop beneficial habits. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me and for everyone listening. Make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for our latest interviews.